Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. That's a whole sermon right there. So now you know everything we're going to talk about. You delight in showing mercy, and mercy triumphs over just judgment. And yet, we are so much better at judgment than mercy, aren't we? I am so much better at judgment than mercy. And so, uh, thinking about that. We've been in this series talking uh, about this uh, question, how is your doing, and I just I love the fact that if I ask you how you're doing, that, that the response to that question naturally is how am I feeling and what am I thinking about and what are my circumstances. It's an assessment of, of sort of what's happening around me and what I'm feeling about what's happening, which defines then how well I'm doing or how poorly I'm doing. And in that understanding, in that simple question, which is sort of our default setting as we greet one another, is the idea that I'm really not in control. I really don't have much to do with what my disposition is. I'm good when the circumstances are good. I'm not so good when the circumstances are difficult. Uh, I even don't deal with the unknown very well. I, I don't like when things are pending. Anybody else like that? You know, I like for everything to be resolved and settled and locked down and fixed and working. And maybe that's personality. Maybe not everybody feels that way. Maybe some people like the adventure of unpaid bills and, you know. <laughs> Unresolved medical issues, those are fun, you know. But I like for things to be settled. I like for them to all kind of fit nicely together. And, and, uh, and so I find that then when I change the question just a little, and the question becomes, how is your doing? How are my daily practices impacting how I feel and how I think and how my spiritual journey is going and, and really my overall well-being. And I think what's fascinating about that is that the social sciences are sort of caught up with the teachings of Jesus. I mean, Jesus taught a long time ago that we are to engage in this, you know, sort of pro-social behavior, this idea that we are to love God and love one another and, and that we are to engage in meaningful practices, so much so that he had disciples, he, which implies there was discipline, <laughs> I'm a disciple because I do things. My doing is reflective of who I follow. And we're just now catching up to that. And so now we know that there are what we call metacognitive virtues. And we've talked about those over the last couple of weeks. Uh, a metacognitive virtue is a virtue that allows us to step away from ourselves and to think about our thinking. Um, they are a higher form of thinking that allows us to reorder our Thinking. So as we have celebrated this series, are celebrating this series out of the last chapters of the book of Romans, which then says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's not just a spiritual idea that Paul is talking about, because now he's going to go on and talk about the ways in which we might implement this renewal of mind. And, uh, and so we've talked about that. So this mindfulness is the first metacognitive value. Uh, today, if you go to a therapist, uh, you know, and you're trying to get things settled, a therapist is going to encourage you to spend time in mindfulness. You're going to have to get quiet. You're going to have to not, you know, part of the issues that we have going on in us is that we, we hardly ever feel an emotion that we're not already judging and analyzing. Mindfulness allows us to step back and just say, yes, these are my feelings. These are the real ones. 
I don't know about you, but I clean my feelings up when I think about them. Anybody else do that? <laughs> you know, so you're feeling prejudiced about others. Nope. Nope, none of that. <laughs> you're feeling sad. No, I feel good. You, know, you feel depressed. Oh, no. I'm a follower of God. I never feel depressed. We do those judgmental things of our own feelings. Mindfulness says, look, if you can't be honest with yourself, <laughs> that's a really small circle. You understand? And mindfulness says, I'm going I'm to be honest with myself. These are the real feelings that are happening to me. This is really what's going on. These are my real thoughts, and these are my real feelings. And I'm stepping back from them, and I'm really admitting. I'm writing down what they are. I'm getting familiar with what's going on. I can't really do the next piece of work until I start to do it. And my, maybe as I look at it, I go, you know what? I don't want to think like that. <laughs> How often do I think about my thinking? Mostly, I just live in this brain. I don't really stop and go, hey, brain, stop it. Stop it. Let's think differently. And that's what the practices are really about. The second one is empathy. These metacognitive values, there are two, mindfulness and empathy. Interestingly, this allows us to look at others, and we try to identify what are you feeling, what are you going through, what's happening to you. It sort of fits together with another saying you may have heard a long time ago. What's the greatest commandment in the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. To create a space of worship for God in which mindfulness naturally occurs. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The whole idea of devotion to God and prayer to God is to create a space of mindfulness in which we're not only analyzing ourselves by ourselves, but we're allowing the Holy Spirit to do that mindful work in us. And empathy then, love others as you love yourself. See it from others' points of view. And then added to these two metacognitive values are what we call pro-social values. And I think this is fascinating. Uh, if I say to you, what's a pro-social value? A lot of us would go, well, I don't know, that's psychobabble. I don't know what you're talking about. But if I said, name for me the antisocial values, you would know those. Because we understand antisocial behavior, but we don't, are not quite as familiar with pro-social behavior. So here's a really complex scientific understanding. Pro-social virtues are the opposite of antisocial values. <laughs> yeah, so, and in this series, we're just talking about four. We're talking about trust, that Shauna did such an amazing job articulating. It is a pro-social virtue to be trustworthy and to seek to trust others. And, and as she talked about the obstacles to our trust last week in such a beautiful way and then shared such a personal story about learning to trust even when it's hard to trust. Because it is way better for relationships in life and society to trust each other than to not trust each other, even though there's a lot of reasons why you might not want to trust and you might decide to become cynical. It's still way better to be trusting, to be trusting. And so today we talk about compassion and we talk about what that means and how that all fits together. So if you thought for a moment and, uh, about this whole idea of compassion, I, I would make this. Here, here's Merriam-Webster's definition of compassion. Sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. So, so if you said, well, what's the difference between compassion and empathy? Well, empathy is the ability to put yourself in the shoes of another, but compassion is a desire to alleviate the distress in which you find other people. 
And so once we experience, because isn't it interesting that, you know, we can, we can feel with empathy what people are going through, but that still doesn't mean we are willing our desire to get involved. Amen? I, I don't know about you, but for me, the longer I'm in ministry, there's this reality. I know what it means to walk dark journeys with people. So when the phone rings and somebody's going through something, there's a conscious decision that has to be made. You know, do I want to go on? And, and you know what I'm talking about because you know it too. You know when somebody's struggling. You know what it's going to cost you. Your empathy, if you're very empathetic, you are, you are highly aware of what it's going to take to walk that journey, to alleviate that distress in someone else's life. If you've done it a time or two, you're like, ugh. I hear this, you know, I, I say it out loud. I'm not sure I have it in me to go through this with them. Amen? And that's, that's, the, that's the feeling. That's the differentiation between empathy. I understand what it is. I very much, the more empathetic you are, <laughs> the more difficult, the more you understand the price of compassion and what it means to enter in. I, I told the prayer group this morning as we were praying for the services today, I, I said, hey, this is really uh, going to be fun because uh, we're going to talk about some stuff uh, that's really controversial, and I'm so glad it's in the Bible because otherwise we wouldn't be able to talk about it. <laughs> Amen? Because there's some very specific obstacles to compassion. So this is what I want to do. I want to read to you the opening of chapter 14 of the book of Romans, the first nine verses. And I just want you to see if in it, because one of the obstacles I want to talk about is implied, and one of them is very explicit. So I just want to read it to you. By the way, this is just a beautiful piece of writing. You'll understand as I read it. Romans 14.1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. We could stop right there, couldn't we? We could already go, oh, huh. It's a good thing that's in the Bible. Because I don't know if I thought that there were disputable matters that I need to be willing to accept. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything. I'm so blessed right now. I... And it only gets better. But another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. <laughs> Amen. I did not make this up. It is right there in the Bible. Tell you what. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Vegetarian, vegan, gluten-free. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master servant stand or fall? And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. What, a, what a, an amazing sentence that is. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another, and another considers every day alike. And each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. 
for they give thanks to God, and whoever abstains does so to the Lord, and they give thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord for this very reason. Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. What a remarkable piece of writing. So a couple of things that I think he, he speaks to that stand in the way of our compassion for others. The first one is implied, and it has to do with making comparisons. So, so he's talking about what goes on as you have certain beliefs about food and you have certain beliefs about which day of the week on which to worship. And you understand that what's going on in the first century is there's a controversy because everybody has always worshipped on, uh, uh, on Saturday. Saturday's always been the Sabbath. And now because Christ was raised on the first day of the week, there are people that have started to worship on the first day of the week. And so that would be the equivalent of us probably mostly in our culture and Western world. Uh, if we decided next week we were all going to meet on Monday and from now on going to worship on Monday instead of Sunday. So that's kind of what's going on, and there's an argument, you know, about which day is sacred and which day is designated. So that's what he's talking about, the food laws and this issue over the Sabbath and kind of how it all fits together. And so he, he, he just says, why keep looking around at each other? Why are you comparing yourselves to the people around you? That's really not what we should be focused on. In fact, comparing ourselves to others kills compassion. It is difficult to feel that we want to alleviate the suffering in someone else when we are constantly comparing ourselves to the people around us. And so it's kind of the classic idea of keeping your eyes on your own paper. Galatians 6.4, each one should test their own actions and then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. This issue of comparing ourselves to others is a big deal. Comparison, Theodore Roosevelt says, comparison is the thief of joy. And if we stop for a minute and just said, how often am I comparing myself to someone else? In an article, How to Stop Comparing Yourself to Others, Joshua Becker offers these insights. Number one, comparisons are always unfair. It tends to be either our best self comparing ourselves to someone else's worst self, presumed worst self, or our worst self comparing ourselves to someone else's presumed best self. Comparisons are never fair. Never. Number two, comparisons rob us of precious times. Everybody gets 86,400 seconds per day. Any time spent comparing ourselves to someone else is a waste of time. And by the way, when it comes to this issue of comparison, because you know, some of you are looking at me like, well, I don't compare myself to anyone else. Comparisons don't just mean that we compare ourselves to other people. It means we compare other people to other people. Understand what I'm saying? Sometimes we even say these things out loud in front of our children, to our children. Why don't you act more like your... Why don't you act more like... And we find somehow this way of idolizing certain personalities, which are generally the ones that are easy to get along with. Amen? I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I mean, but if we're not comparing, we're not comparing. And comparisons become a waste of time. I, I find this, you know, I raised four daughters, and I wanted them all to be compliant. <laughs> Anybody else? I want my children to do what, I want them to do what they're told. <laughs> but the older they get, the more I think, man, you better have some spirit in you. 
some kind of fortitude to ask, amen? And I didn't like it when they were asking me all those questions, but now that they're asking life those questions, I'm saying more power to you. Comparisons. Comparisons. You're too unique to compare yourself fairly. Number three, what's wrong? How to stop comparing. You're too unique, and so is every other human being. You have nothing to gain but a lot to lose. All the comparing in the world doesn't really get you anywhere. Number four, there's no end to the possible number of comparisons. Comparisons uh, are an addiction. Once you start, you can't stop. You don't ever get done. You don't ever resolve. You don't ever feel better. You don't ever get to the spot where you go, okay, well, now I've got enough self-esteem to go forward. You just got to find the next thing to compare yourself to. And I don't know if you've discovered this yet, but this is a deep truth. You ready? There's always people ahead of you, and there's always people behind you. You're going to feel way better about comparing yourself to some people and way worse about comparing yourself to others. I was in Miami Beach last week, Miami Beach. Right out the window of the condo I was staying in was a yacht. It was bigger than my house. <laughs> it is hard to wake up every morning and feel good about yourself. I don't own a yacht. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> There's always people ahead of you, aren't there? And there's always, and whichever side of the bed you get up on, you're comparing yourself to the people behind you and feeling good, or you're comparing the people ahead of you and feeling bad. It doesn't really help, and we're never done. Comparisons put the focus on the wrong person. We only get to control one person in the whole universe, and that's us. And comparison shifts that focus. Comparisons often result in resentment. We have a tendency to create attitudes with those we sense or believe are behind us. And we have a tendency to build resentment towards those we believe are ahead of us. And finally, comparisons deprive us of joy. The second thing that I think is, is explicit in the conversation is dogma. What stands in the way of compassion? Comparisons stand in the way of compassion and dogma. Dogma is defined as a principle are set of principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true. A principle or set of principles laid down by an authority is incontrovertibly true. I think this passage of Scripture has a soul-shaking series of verses uh, for how we've evolved in the life of the church because it says this, Be accepting of the disputable matters among you. And this is what I realize. In the life of the church, we would have a hard time admitting that there are disputable matters in the first place. Because we believe everything is dogma. All right. I got more notes. In fact, that's why... 2,000 plus years into the existence of this thing we call the ecclesia, the gathering of the called out ones, the church, there are thousands of versions of the church because we do not believe there are acceptable disputable matters. So we simply say, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my indisputable dogmas and start my own form of the religion because I cannot coexist with you and what you consider to be disputable matters. We won't even talk about it. <laughs> Amen? The first major split in Christendom came 
It began in about the 8th century AD, and it finally came to fruition in the 11th century. And that was the split between the Western Church and the Eastern Church. The Eastern Orthodox and all of its variations, and Western Christianity. Anybody know what the controversy was about? Constantinople was the place of the new leadership. So you had Rome and Constantinople, Eastern Church, Western Church. The discussion was over the nature of the Trinity. Aren't you glad we got that solved? <laughs> I mean, here we are all these years later. We, we don't even know. We wouldn't even. I tell you, if I articulated to you the argument that split the church, you'd be like, what? I don't even understand each side of the argument. It makes no sense to me. But that's who we've become. And listen, that's the institution that's trying to say we ought to be less dogmatic about what we set down as truth. And we are like this. We are like this as human beings. I set down as irrefutable proof that this is the way it is. My politics reflect that I think this is the way it is. Our culture right now is being ripped apart by the politics of our country. Each side equally dogmatic. Amen? Pick a side. I don't care. We do that about everything we do. Everything we do. I mentioned food earlier. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Vegan, vegetarian, Epicurean. I'm Epicurean. I eat everything. <laughs> but we, you know, gluten-free, I mean, that's just our food. That's just where we've come to. Everybody is absolutely sure. Isn't it interesting? I don't know. I, I, I need to lose a little weight. I'm thinking I'm going to start on a diet now that I just got back from vacation. <laughs> and it's if you ask people, you know, what should I do? Oh, Lord, there is no shortage of dogma about how to lose weight. Amen. I mean, there is no shortage of dogma about how to lose weight. And everybody is sure that this is, the, this is it. This is the golden shrine. And we do that over almost how to raise our kids, health care, you, you name it. There's, not, there's very few things in our culture that's not highly divisive because we create it into an irrefutable truth. And boy, we do that around our faith. And the very idea that Paul would suggest that there are acceptable, disputable matters among you. We'd have to go, whoa, pump the brakes, buddy. Aren't you glad it's in the Bible instead of just me saying it? Dogma. We have political dogma. We have social dogma. We have religious dogma. And he says, don't quarrel about disputable matters. I, I, I just, when I think about it, I think about how our homes work. This isn't theoretical stuff. This stuff's happening. Families are being torn about, torn apart by generational dogmas, by what we believe, and it's standing in the way of our compassion. I grew up in a home where my dad hammered into me work. My dad grew up with an alcoholic father. He had to go to work when he was still in high school. He had to go to work to support his whole family the day he graduated from high school. And my dad, when I was growing up, was saying, listen, whatever else you mess up in your life, you better get this right. You work. I got my first job when I was in eighth grade. Eighth grade. I have not had 
I have not had a time in my life where I was not working since eighth grade. And I walked two miles to school in the snow. My first job was a coal miner. That's not true. I had black lung at 14. That's not true. But my dad hammered into me this reality of work, and that creates prejudices in me. I mean, you know, my kids will be talking to me, and they'll say, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, yeah, I had that job for a while. What? I didn't know you had that job. I had every job. I've had a 1,000 jobs. If you want to know the worst job I ever had, would you like to know? I sold women's shoes for a while. <laughs> Let me tell you something. There is nothing that will disillusion a young man more than that. <laughs> Still wake up with a cold sweat sometimes. <laughs> but that creates certain prejudice in you, doesn't it? That stand in the way of compassion. And a lot of us grew up with the old Judeo-Christian work ethic. You know, where you work hard and you get what you deserve. That's not always true, is it? That is absolutely not always true. But that dogma, that affects the way we show compassion to the people around us. And listen, here's why that's so important. is because it affects the generations in our own homes. Because I don't know if you know this, but boomers and millennials have their own sets of dogma. Progressives and conservatives have their own kind of dogma. And generationally, we know that the generations coming behind us tend to be more progressive than the generation. And that's so new, isn't it? I was at the tail end of the boomers, you know, and I had elephant bell jeans and long hair in high school. I was a mess. But I thought I was cool. My dad didn't. Because it's always kind of been, you know, that the older generation is more conservative and the younger generation is more progressive. But the dogmas of the generations begin to divide our homes and families. And the older generation says these are irrefutable truths. But they're not. And dogma creates a sense in which we cannot feel compassion for one another. And so it matters. It matters with great significance. There's a biblical kind of compassion we're called to, Matthew 25, 37. Then the righteous will answer him, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whether, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus continually says, listen, there's a whole world full of people who deserve and need compassion. And remember the conversation, who, who was a neighbor? To the man who fell among thieves, the one who showed him mercy, you and I are called to practice this pro-social virtue called compassion. We're called to see the people around us as being in need of mercy. And you can start in your own home. There are people in your own home that need compassion. They need to set aside the dogma and the comparisons, and we need to engage in a pro-social behavior of true compassion. True compassion. 
Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Colossians 3.12, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has grievances against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Years ago, we were in a Bible study in this church, and one guy got really mad, and he got up and he walked out and left, left the church. Never came back. That's really hard when you got 30 people. I mean, you can do the math. You know what the issue was? We were having a conversation like this about compassion and loving people. And his insistence was that all of these, all of these scriptures only apply to people within the faith. That we don't have to show kindness and compassion to people outside the faith. Now, I will admit that there are some places like these letters. This is, this, is a, this is Paul writing to a church, so it is a Christian community that he's addressing. But then how do you get around passages like this right over Romans 12, 20? On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head. I got an email this week. Somebody was reading ahead. And they said, what is this heaping burning coals on someone's head? What does that mean? I said, well, what it means is that you can hurt them badly by loving them. It's not really what it means, but isn't that, that we kind of say that. I mean, I grew up with that. You want to really get them, love them. That'll heap burning coals on their head. You want to make them suffer? It's like, you know, it's like we have a toolbox of weapons, you know? Okay. Oh, I'm going for the love today. I got you love right here. That's <laughs> not really what he's saying. What he's saying is, if you really want to impact the life of someone else, if you really want to affect their emotions, if you really want to get in their head, in their heart, treat them well when they mistreat you. Show them genuine compassion because that starts messing up their insides. That starts burning something in them of going, I don't really get it. I would have expected when I said that for them to say that. I didn't expect my dogma to be met with compassion. I expected dogma on dogma. I expect we'd just get... Ah, ah, ah. Amen? Because I'm going to tell you this. We seem to be shocked that the Democrats and the Republicans don't show compassion. Really? Or that the celebrities over in Hollywood don't show compassion. We are the people of God. We are the bearers of true compassion. And that we have fallen down on the job and allowed our dogma and our comparisons to take us away from this truth. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. We are supposed to hold this light up in our culture, in our world. It's not the job of the Democrats. It's not the job of the Republicans. It's not the job of Hollywood. It is the job of those who call themselves by the name of Jesus Christ. And we're supposed to do it on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. We're supposed to do it in our homes and in our places of work and in our neighborhoods. Our conversations are to be laced. You are an ambassador of reconciliation as though God himself is making his appeal through us. And this is our invitation 
to treat those around us with true compassion. I see four things in the passage that I think matters. Number one, we should be more accepting and less quarrelsome. He says this right out loud. Accept the, the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. I, I just, if you just ask yourself this question, how much time do you spend quarreling over disputable matters? How much time have we spent this week? Let me ask you this question. I don't know how much television time costs, but it's expensive, isn't it? I, I think a, 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 a commercial today during the Super Bowl is millions, millions of dollars. How much money do you think has been spent this week over disputable matters? Are you uncomfortable that we're talking about this? If it helps you, I wrote this sermon before this week went down. I don't know if that matters to you. And I don't really care how much time they spend on television. I do care about this, how much time is spent at your dinner table. About disputable matters. We ought to be more accepting of disputable matters. We ought to be more accepting of disputable matters. We ought to be more accepting of disputable matters. Now listen, I used to teach a world religions class for the community college. In fact, it's interesting to me because we still have refugees from that class who still come to church. That's so weird. And so I would start the class, and, and, you know, it doesn't take very many days before somebody asks this question in the class. You know, how are you going to lecture about world religions when you're a Christian minister? Aren't you really going to sandbag all the other religions? Yes, I am. <laughs> I said, no, listen, here's the deal. I'm going to be fair. I'm going to stand up here, and I'm going to, to the very best of my ability, teach you what every religion around the world teaches. That's what I'm going to do. I'll be fair, I'll be straightforward, I'll talk to you about what it is. But if you ask me the question, how am I supposed to know God? I can only tell you one experience. I've just had one experience. I just know one path. And if you say, well, I'm on another path, I'll say, I don't know anything about that path. <laughs> I can just tell you how to get to God for me. That's all I can tell you. And I want to tell you this, I believe that with all my heart. I believe a lot of things. It doesn't mean I know doesn't mean I know. It means I believe. And I can believe passionately. We are taught to be childlike in our faith. We are taught to seek, to ask, to knock, to be learners, to be people who approach this world with a childlike curiosity and approach the people in it with a childlike. It doesn't mean we cannot devoutly believe our beliefs. This is not about wavering in our beliefs. This is about an attitude that takes those beliefs and turns them into a, an excuse for separation and a lack of compassion. And that's very different. I can believe with all my heart and still open my arms to embrace people who don't believe exactly as I believe. In fact, I'm commanded in Scripture to be that person. Love those who despitefully use you. Not the people who are neutral or indifferent, but the people who are coming after you. Love those people. Show compassion. Who do you need to be compassionate with more than that? You don't need to be compassionate with people like you. You have to be compassionate with people not like you. And boy, our homes are full of people not like us. Amen. I mean, if you're a neat person, if you like your house to be super neat, the odds are you married somebody who's not like that. And if you did happen to marry somebody who's just like you in the neatness category, 
God gave you children that are nothing like you. <laughs> Amen? It's just God's sense of humor. Here you go. Oh, you think you got it together? <laughs> Let me bring in child number two. Anybody else have that experience? I was a great parent for a while. Then I had more than one kid. Turned out I knew nothing. I just got lucky the first time. There are acceptable, disputable matters. We ought to say it out loud. We ought to say it out loud. We ought to say it out loud. We ought to say it around our dinner table. I'm heartbroken that families over politics and social issues cannot sit around the table anymore and talk. That should not be. There are acceptable, disputable matters. Number two, and by the way, that point is we should be more accepting and less quarrelsome. You can reverse engineer that. Are you being quarrelsome? Maybe you should be more accepting. Number two, we should regard one another without contempt. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say, don't look at a woman with lust in your heart. You've heard it said, do not commit murder. I, I tell you, do not be angry with your brother. Anyone who says raka to their brother or sister is in danger of the fires of Hades. It's literally the verse. That word raka means holding them in contempt. We are not to hold others in contempt. And that is so easy in our culture. It is so easy in our culture to regard people who think differently and believe differently than we do in contempt. And that happens inside the church and outside the church. But it ought not be. Because one of the great pro-social virtues and one of the commands of Scripture is to be compassionate with one another. And we can't be compassionate if we are dogmatic or making comparisons. And we're invited into that reality. Number three. We are to regard others without judgment. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servant, stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord will make them to stand. Isn't that an interesting scripture? I would have thought it would have said something like, uh, for the Lord will, you know, for they will stand or fall for the Lord, and the Lord will get a lot of them. Because we think like that. Vengeance is, I hear this all the time. Well, they don't agree with me. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He's going to get them, I'm sure. I'm just going to leave it up to God. I'm not going to worry about it. He'll smite them. <laughs> this passage said, the Lord will make them stand or fall, and he'll make them to stand because he's God. I don't know what that means exactly. I think what it means is mind your own business. Amen? I mean, isn't it, is that a fair interpretation? Let's read it again. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Mind your own business. To their own master, servant, stand or fall. Mind your own business. And they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. Mind your own business. Yeah, I think it's pretty accurate. <laughs> I'd like to tell you what the Greek means is mind your own business. That's not true. but. And I wonder what would happen to our compassion if we just said, I'm going to mind my own business. You know, oh, look, my child is saying something to me. I don't know that they need to know all my dogma about what they're saying. Like, I like, I like, like their, I don't like, think they like, need to like hear what I like have to say about like what they're saying to me like right now. <laughs> that maybe I don't need to insert myself and my dogma into every conversation. And if I'm mindful, I start to go, whoa, 
I really am a know-it-all. I'm that guy. I'm that guy. How did I get to be that guy? You ever stop? Some of you had this experience. You ever stop and listen to yourself and go, I'm the old guy. I'm the old guy. Well, in the old days, how we used to do it. Well, I'll tell you what you need to think about. <laughs> well, there's two or three things you better know. I'm him. I became him. I don't know what happened. But maybe we should be less judgmental. Because I'm pretty sure when you start to see your kids do this, here he goes again. <laughs> You're not creating great connections. Amen? Amen. We should be less judgmental. And the last one is simply this. We should be willing to admit that there are acceptable differences. We should be willing to admit that in so many places in our lives and in our world and in our culture and in our faith. There are places where there are acceptable differences. And so I just want to ask you this. This week we're going to walk out into this week and we're going to practice compassion. We're not just going to talk about it today. There's a, there's a list you're going to be asked to do some mindful, empathetic, trusting, compassionate practice this week of engaging. I want to read you this. I'm reading it every single week. It's Richard Foster's. I think it's so good. I think it matters. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. Perhaps somewhere in the subterranean chambers of your life, you've heard the call to deeper, fuller living. You've become weary of the frothy experiences and shallow teaching. Every now and then you've caught glimpses, hints of something more than you have known. Inwardly, you long to launch out into the deep. The disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that He can transform us. The inner righteousness we seek is not something that's poured on our heads. God's ordained the disciplines of the spiritual life as the means by which we place ourselves where He can bless us. In this regard, it would be proper to speak of the path of disciplined grace. It is grace because it is free. It is disciplined because there is something for us to do. My question to you as we close is, how is your doing? God, would you help us? As we close in these moments, it's a heavy, heavy, heavy topic. And perhaps you've touched or nudged or pushed a little and maybe these closing moments demand a response. So as our prayer counselors move into place, maybe someone at the close of this service needs to seek out someone and just pray. Just say, you know, I felt the Holy Spirit's conviction and I don't want to live like that. I, I, I want to let that go. I want to leave some burden behind and lay some things down. For others, maybe it'll mean seeking out a minister, a pastor at the conclusion of the service. Maybe it'll be calling and making an appointment and sitting down and really talking with someone. Maybe it'll simply mean a prayerful response to the words of this closing song. But would you search our hearts? Would you remind us that as we become people who create space for mindfulness and empathy and begin to build trust and seek after compassion, that these are the disciplines that bring the kingdom of God to life in our homes and families and in our own hearts and minds and in our neighborhoods and church family and in the world. So challenge us and do your work in us. And may each of us be obedient to the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, we pray it in Jesus' name. 
Everybody said together. Will you stand as we respond? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.